Hey, good morning. Uh, for those of you that I've not yet met, my name is uh, Prentiss, and I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, and I just want to say welcome to those uh, here in person. Uh, and I want to say hello to those that are watching online because uh, maybe you're out of town. And for those that will be watching sometime this week, uh, we pray for um, safe travels as many of you return from your Thanksgiving uh, holidays. And so uh, this morning is something special uh, to not only me, but, but to the church. Uh, we celebrate and we acknowledge and we usher in uh, a season called Advent. Uh, and, and what Advent means, it's this Latin word with la- this Latin word meaning uh, to wait or to anticipate. Uh, And for the church, Advent uh, is about anticipating the birth of Jesus. Uh, And so this morning we'll start our series, our Advent series, and it's called Our Family Tree. And and as we look at the family tree of Jesus, uh, yes, we have an opportunity to uh, do a little bit of investigating and reflecting on our own family tree, But really what we're looking at is the family tree of Jesus uh, and how that story unfolds and what that has to do with our lives and how that impacts us. And so as Gunnar graciously read for us our Advent uh, passage for for today, I want to read the passage uh, pertaining to our particular sermon. And that comes from Matthew uh, chapter 1. And for many of us, it's a chapter that we kind of just gloss over because if you've ever read the Bible or read the New Testament or read Matthew, uh, the beginning chapters can be uh, a little daunting or even boring, if I may, uh, because all it is is essentially a genealogy. But I, but I will say this. Uh, if we just gloss over the genealogy of Jesus, we will miss out on so much beauty uh, and so much story and history that has so much to do with our lives today. And so I'm just going to start off. It's a, it's a long list of a family tree. Uh, but today, I'm just going to read a few verses. And, and we're going to highlight a woman in Jesus' genealogy, and her name is Tamar. And so here is what... Here's what the word of the Lord says. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. I know that sounds irrelevant right now, but don't you worry. I want to connect the dots. Let me pray and let's get started. God, thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. You've come into this world incarnate, God in humanly form as a baby to be with us, to be in relationship with us, ultimately to bring us salvation and new life. An everlasting life, and we thank you for that. And so, God, in these weeks leading up to your birth, 
maybe these weeks of Advent, may we take this so seriously as we prepare for your arrival. May we see it as weeks of holiness and sacredness and mystery and worship. Because what you have done for us, in your name we pray, amen and amen. Now I hope for many of us, we had a great Thanksgiving weekend. I know for my wife, Marie and I, we had a wonderful, yet busy and loaded Thanksgiving weekend with a lot of family. And, and I will say this, for many of us, there's nothing like spending time with family that reminds us of our own brokenness. Uh, because of our family tree, because of our family system, because of our family behaviors and habits, there's, there's nothing like time with family, like intentional time with family, where we leave wondering, man, that's where I get that from. Or, or oh my gosh, or maybe the opposite, and like, God, I'm so glad I'm not here anymore. I'm so glad I don't live at home anymore. And, and there's so many times where I talk to people and, and I say, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Yes, it was family uh, and it was so stressful. And, and maybe of, many of us, we can relate. Not that we don't like our families or dislike them, but for whatever reason, uh, we get close and we spend time with our family and, and it's, it's just this, this paradox of love and appreciation and stress. And much of that is because it reminds us of the things that we endured even in our childhood. I remember one time I was uh, eating dinner with my family uh, at a restaurant. This was a couple years ago. And I brought a buddy of mine to join us. Uh, And we sat and we were eating. And my friend was observing our family dynamics. My sister and I, we love each other. We have an interesting relationship uh, my parents, you're dealing with two vastly different generations, uh, vastly different cultures, and even languages, uh, and in behavior, and mannerisms. And after I left the restaurant with a buddy of mine, I remember internally thinking, oh, I'm so glad that's over. And, and, and there was even a part of me that, and maybe you felt this during the holidays, is you felt a little self-righteous. I know I felt a little self-righteous, like, I'm so glad I'm not like them anymore. I'm so glad I've moved on to a better life and doing better things and living a healthier life. I'm so glad. And as I was internalizing this, my friend looked at me and said, man, you guys are all the same. You are just like your parents and your sister. You guys all behave the same. And I'll tell you what, there was nothing more offensive that you could have said to me at that moment. But regardless of your family history, your family system, your family experience, the reality is a lot of how we are made up is not just by our our own individual facets and personalities. It's part of what we bring from our family systems and in our own families. Uh, There was a man named Carl Whitaker who was a pioneer of family therapy. He says, there is no such thing as individuals in the world, only fragments of families. Now, for many of us, this is bad news. Uh, But let me just say that it doesn't have to be. It is a good thing to recognize the, the goodness of us, the worst qualities of us, and even in between it, not everything, but it has a, has a lot to do with how we were raised in our family system and, and in the generations before and generations before and generations before. 
Now, the point here isn't just about unpacking our family systems and our, this isn't a family therapy class, but the point of all of this is to know and understand that many of us, we come here with brokenness and and pain and unhealthiness. And some of it, yes, it's due to perhaps uh, to no fault of our parents and their parents and their parents, or maybe perhaps there, there is a little bit of fault because of the hurt and pain that was, uh, that was done. But for many of us, regardless of our family systems and what we bring, because of our history, because of uh, the place that God had placed us, we bring in our own brokenness wherever we go. Many of us here, including myself, we're broken people. And it shows perhaps by the way that we treat others, maybe our spouse, our child, a friend, maybe we've betrayed somebody, maybe we're wrestling with our own depression and anxiety, and again, perhaps to no fault of our own, maybe we're experiencing uh, financial hardship because of mistakes that we have made. Maybe intentionally or unintentionally, we've hurt people that we care about around us. The hurt that we bring to the table for whatever reason, oftentimes, believe it or not, whether you know it or not, it shows. And I'm the same way. It shows, and it comes through different ways, and it manifests in different ways, and and we've probably experienced that. And in our society, our society creates this dichotomy of just two options, always just two options, good or bad, winner or loser, you're in or you're out. And again, this manifests in different ways. You're either this political party or or you're this. You're either from this side of the, the tracks or you're from here. And really, there's no in between. Our society has created this dangerous, dangerous dichotomy. And the way that's dangerous for us is that when we bring in our own baggage, our own hurt, our own pain, and it manifests in our relationships around us, then we start to live into this dichotomy saying, well, the way that I behave, the way that I live, and the way I treat people isn't always good. It isn't healthy. It isn't beautiful. And if we live into this dynamic, if we aren't healthy, if we aren't good, if, we, if it isn't beautiful, then it's the complete opposite side, and we call ourselves bad, unworthy. We experience shame. We use the words like unlovable. We experience guilt for our past. We refer to ourselves as a person who makes mistakes. And because of that, we define the totality of who we are based on those mistakes that we've made. And I don't know what you've done. I don't know what your past looks like. I don't know what you've experienced. But maybe some of these words that I just named triggers something or does something to you. And in this world of dichotomy, of either you're good or you're bad, then oftentimes we put ourselves in the bad, the story of Tamar flips this upside down. And I would say this, it gives every one of us, including myself, a hope for healing, redemption, in going back to wholeness, 
Now, for a moment, I want to unpack the story of Tamar, which sometimes is known as the story of Judah. Uh, so, so bear with me for just a moment, because I want to unpack this for you. It's a fascinating story, and it's an interesting story, and I want to unpack all of it, uh, because I do hear some kiddos in the room as well. So if you're interested in the fine details of the story, go to Genesis chapter 38. If you, uh, and you don't have to raise your hand and no judgment. If you liked TV shows like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or you name it, if you like those shows, this is the story for you. I'll just tell you that right now. The story of Tamar uh, and Judah starts off in 28, chapter 38, and it's in a weird placement because in chapter 37 all the way to 50 it is a story of how Judah and his brothers uh, sold one of their other brothers, Joseph, into slavery. And so if you've been around the church for a long time, you kind of know the story. If you, if you haven't, that's okay. There was a man named Joseph who had a dream. His dream that it was that his whole family, the whole nation would bow down to him. And it was a dream that was given to God. All he was doing was being the messenger. And, and believe it or not, and maybe you might re react the same way if your sibling was like, you must bow down to me. Now, this is what happened. Joseph said, hey, I got this dream from God, and God said that all my brothers, including you, Judah, will bow down to me. They got jealous. They got upset. They tried to kill him. But instead of killing him, there was one of the brothers named Judah that said, hey, brothers, wait up. Hold on. Let's not kill our brother Joseph for having that dream. If we're going to kill him, if we're going to get rid of him anyways, let's just sell him off to slavery to be a slave so that we can at least make money off of it. And so the whole chapters between 37 and 50 is all about that. And then randomly in chapter 38, there's this story about Judah meeting a, uh, and, and his sons and this woman named Tamar. And so it may feel like the author just kind of slipped in this story because back to chapter 9, it's like the story continues of Joseph. But I'll say this, that it's all relevant whether we know it or not. We cannot understand the story of Tamar without understanding the story of Judah and Judah's family, which includes Joseph. And so I think the author was very intentional by where uh, this person placed the story of Judah and Tamar. And so there was a point after they sold uh, Joseph into slavery, Judah, the brother who did that, it was his bright idea to make some money off of it, needed to get away. And I would imagine it's because there was a lot of shame in Judah's life. He just sold off their brother because of their greed, because of their jealousy. And so in chapter 38, it says, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth again to another son named Shelah. So not only does uh, Judah leave the family out of shame because of what he had done, 
He goes off and marries a Canaanite woman, which was forbidden in Israelite law during this time. Not only does Judah marry a Canaanite woman, but has three sons with her. And by the eldest is a, is a guy named Ur. The middle child was Onan, and the youngest was Shalos in that order. And then we hear that Judah, later on, arranged the marriage between his first son, Ur, and here we meet a woman named Tamar. And we don't know why Ur dies. All we know is that he had done evil and wicked in the eyes of God, and Ur dies, and now Tamar is left as a widow. Now, according to Israelite law, if the brother... Uh, if a brother in a family is married but does not have children and that brother dies, then the law is that the next eldest brother would have to marry uh, and bear children with the older brother's wife. Now, it sounds foreign. That sounds really, really strange to us. But it was a way to honor the family line by producing offspring to continue the lineage. And it was to really protect the woman, in this case, Tamar. Because during this highly patriarchal society, widows were oftentimes marginalized. They were vulnerable. They were without much rights. And and to be married into a family uh, was uh, for protection for the woman. So you can see that even though it's weird and strange and bizarre that the rule is, okay, you know, if my brother dies without a child, then I have to take his place and bear a child. That's really strange, but that was A, to honor and to preserve the family line, which will bear to be very important, but it's also to protect the woman. And so if you remember the story, there's Ur, that was the oldest. The next person in line was the middle child named Onan. Now, it was Onan's responsibility to carry on having children with his brother's wife, Tamar. But he didn't want to do this, it says. And and many scholars believe the reason why Onan didn't want to carry out his responsibility is because he was greedy. Now, the way that the Israelite law is set up is that that child that Onan would have had with Tamar wouldn't be his child. It would still be Tamar's child, and technically, even though Ur died, it would be between Tamar and Ur, which means that the inheritance would have been split up in three different ways. Right now, the inheritance was just between Onan, the middle child, and Shelah, the younger child. And and so scholars believe the reason why Onan didn't want to have children to carry out the responsibility is because he didn't want to split the the inheritance. He was greedy. Now remember what Judah, his dad, did. He sold off his brother, Joseph, into slavery for money because he was greedy. Now there's just something about greed and exploitation and, and selfishness that carried out into the next generation. So not only did Onan not want to split the inheritance, but the interesting thing is he still had relations, sexual relations with Tamar. 
Again, I won't tell you how. You can read chapter 38. But he made sure that she wouldn't conceive. And so if you see what's happening is that Tamar here, once again, as a vulnerable and marginalized woman, as a widow, is now married to Onan, and Onan uses her and exploits her and is willing to receive his own pleasure and his own satisfaction, but not put up his end of the bargain by putting up a child and giving Tamar a child, which is something Tamar really wanted. Again, selfishness and greed and exploitation is just running rampant through, these, through this family line. And so guess what? Now Onan dies. It's a weird story. Ur dies for whatever reason. Onan dies now for his disobedience. And now here we are, Tamar, twice married, twice widowed, still no children. Now, you can't help but to feel so bad for Tamar because not only is this her reality, but here's Judah, the father of these sons. The next in line, since Ur died, Onan died, is Shelah, the youngest. And and Judah says, you know what, (laughs) Tamar, I know what the rules are. The next in line, it must be Shelah. But you see, Shelah is not of age yet. And so he says, Shayla, I'll give you to Shayla to marry Shayla to bear children since Ur can do it, since Onan can do it, can do it, but not right now. Verse 11, it says, Judas then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in her father's household until my son Shayla grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live with his father's household. So Not only does Tamar have it so bad because she's twice widowed, no children, no offspring, no lineage, Judah is blaming this. The brothers, both brothers, two sons, death on Tamar. And and so he's like, okay, Shayla's next, but in his mind, he's like, if Shayla marries and, and gets with Tamar, then he was afraid that he was going to lose his child, his last child, his youngest child, just like he lost Ur and just like he lost Onan. So he kind of deceives Tamar and says, hey, why don't you go back to your father's house? And don't you worry, I'll call you when Shelah's of age. But but Judah had no intention of doing that. Hopefully, you know, she may have forgotten or maybe she found somebody else, I don't know. But it was his way of, uh, of stopping what was happening. In Judah's eyes, his sons could do no wrong. Tamar was the issue the entire time. And the reason why her, both of his sons died and therefore wanted to protect the third son. Which is funny because the Bible makes it clear, God makes it clear that Ur died because of his wickedness and Onan died because of his wickedness, his greed, his exploitation, his selfishness. Not because of Tamar. And as a side note, I just feel like we, see, we still see remnants of this kind of attitude and this kind of mentality even today, this, this shifting of blame. I remember when I was a pastor in Bellevue, I was 
working uh, full-time as the associate pastor, and as a favor to a friend who was a, a teacher at a local Christian high school in Bellevue, uh, he asked me if I can teach one Bible class uh, for the semester. They were desperate for a new teacher, uh, so they called me because they were desperate. So I said, okay, I've never been a teacher before. I've never aspired to be a teacher, but I will teach this Bible class for a semester to help the school out. So I did that, and I just remember the, there was a lot of weird rules around the school that I was very, as a public school, pro, a public school where anything goes, uh, I was at this Christian private school where things were a bit different. And I remember when there was, there was actually announcements of certain dress codes, or girls would be sent home because they were wearing like a tank top, but the strap had to be bigger than two fingers. It was really strange. And, and the reason why is because if, <laughs> if the straps were, were smaller than two fingers, then it would make the boys stumble, right? Like, I think we've heard of this before. Many of us, we call this purity culture. And, and I feel like purity culture, the, the, there's different books. Again, if you're new to Christianity, this is all weird. But if you've been around the church for a long time, you've read the books. I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Boy Meets, I mean, or was it just me? I read all the books. <laughs> and, and it has to do with the certain rules around dating and, and oftentimes protecting the boys of stumbling or whatever it is. And, and I think the intention, sure, was okay, was good. Talking about modesty, that's a whole conversation we can have. But the impact and the leftover was around shame and, and victim blaming and, and hurt and, and responsibility all on the women. Because I would say, going back to the story of, of the school that I taught at, if the boys were lusting or having these inappropriate thoughts or, or whatever it is, it was their fault. And, and yet the school, and I'm not blaming the school, it's really, it was a Christian culture at the time saying, girls, if these boys stumble in lust, then it's your fault. And we know that's not true. Everyone's responsible for their own behavior and their own thoughts. And although that was a side note, that's basically what we're seeing here in the life of Judah. Judah's sons could do no wrong. They were perfect angels. It was Tamar who was the, what one commentator said, thought of as the black widow, who if any man comes near her, then they die because of whatever she possesses. That just wasn't true. The Bible even makes it clear the sons were the evil ones, and therefore they died because of it. And so here we are. Judah says, go back home. Now, this was kind of a uh, statement of a walk of shame. Like, Tamar has to go home. Twice divorced or twice widowed, twice uh, unmarried and no kids, goes home back to her father's house. That was shameful. That was embarrassing. But the interesting thing is, Tamar seems to always be one step ahead of what Judah is up to. Tamar knew that Judah was not being honest. So she did something a bit sneaky, uh, interesting. She disguised herself as a temple prostitute. And then she waited, she found out where Judah was going to be. This is after, this is much after uh, he becomes a widow. She, his wife dies, uh, he's done with 
with the mourning season is what chapter 38 says. And somehow Tamar got word of where Judah would be as a widower. And so she dressed up like a temple prostitute, which is actually common during those days. Uh, and he was, she was hanging out disguised, had a, had a covering on, and waited until Judah would solicit her, which he did. And so they're having this conversation, they were negotiating of what was going to happen, uh, and Tamar says, okay, I mean, Judah didn't know that this was essentially his daughter-in-law. He solicits this temple prostitute and says, let's have relations, and I'll give you a young goat. Okay, that's, that's how they bargained, okay? Don't ask me. For your services, I will give you a young goat. And I love... He, uh, I love Tamar's response, was like, I'll agree to that, but I need something in collateral. Because you see, Judah didn't just happen to have a goat on him. You know, it's not like you pull out your wallet, you know, like cash or whatever. He didn't have his, wife, his goat on him. And so he says, I promise you, we'll do our thing, and then I'll give you a young goat. And Tamar's always one step ahead. And Tamar says, okay, well, I need something in collateral. How will I know that this is going to actually happen? And so chapter 30, verse 18, he said, he said, what pledge should I give to you? What, what do you want as collateral? And, and she says, I want your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, and, they, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Now, there's three things that Judah gave to Tamar, his seal, his cord, and his staff. A seal in the ancient Near East was either a ring or a necklace. Imagine like a cork, like a wine cork, with a kind of a stamp at the end of it, or a ring with a stamp. You'd put it in ink, and you would stamp. It's like almost like a notary. It's almost like a signature. It was unique to every person, and you would stamp it, and that was like your word. That was you signing of a contract. It was your identity. It was who you were. There was nothing else like it. And so Judah says, here, here he takes off his, his signet or his seal. Here, hold on to this. This is yours. And he says, take this cord. Uh, oftentimes religious people wore cords. It was like part of their prayer shawls. Uh, it was a, a tradition where it represented certain prayers. So he took off his cord, put it on Tamar, and says, okay, here's my, here's my stamp. This is basically my ID card, my, my identity. Here's my cord. And then here's my staff. The staff represented authority and leadership. And all of everything that uh, Judah possessed. And so he says, okay, take, take my signature, take my prayer shawl, and, and take the staff, the symbol of my leadership, and then I'll, I'll trade you with that young goat. I know where you live. I know what village you're from. Now go. Okay. Things happened, and it said she got pregnant. Now, as Tamar and Judah, now stay with me here, as, Judah, as Tamar and Judah left to go on their way, to Judah's credit, he tried to find her and give her the goat. Judah sent a messenger saying, okay, here's the young goat. Go to her village, give her the goat, and get all my stuff back. And so the guy says, okay. He goes into the village. 
and he's looking for, he doesn't know he's looking for Tamar because Tamar was disguised. He's looking for a shrine prostitute. He's asking around, asking around, and everyone's like, there's no, there's no such person. There's no, prostitute, there's no temple prostitute here. You got the wrong place. And so he comes back and says, hey, Judah, I tried. Here's a young goat. I couldn't find her. And Judah kind of pats himself on the back and says, well, I guess I tried. I guess I tried. And then it says in verse 24 that three months later, Judah got word that Tamar was pregnant. And his response was this. His response in verse 24 says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Oh my goodness, do you notice, do you see the hypocrisy? And not even the hypocrisy, but the irony. I don't think at this point Judah knows that Tamar is pregnant with his child. Nobody knows. It's kind of a secret. The irony, the hypocrisy. And so he says, my daughter-in-law, Tamar, prostituted herself or you know, had sexual relations outside of wedlock, had a child, and so therefore she should be punished. How dare she do that? And and so again, Tamar being a step ahead of, of Judah says this. It says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were uh, twins in her womb. And so she's, she's about to give birth to twins. But the best part of this story is that instead of Tamar coming up and said, okay, you can, burn, you can burn me alive, you can kill me, but guess what, Judah? Guess what, everybody? Guess what, public? Judah here is the father. Judah's the one that solicited a prostitute, and here we are, and they would both actually be executed for that. But instead of, Ju- instead of Tamar doing this, instead of what my friends would say, instead of snitching, right? Because, okay, well, maybe not this crowd, but my friends would say that. And instead of doing that, she was very subversive. And she says, okay, I won't really share who, who's the father, but I'll just say this. Hey, whose who's seal is this? Hey, hey whose who's prayer shawl, whose cord is this? Hey, whose staff is this? Does this... Does this look familiar to anybody? Now, obviously, Tamar knows whose it is. And, and Judah is, kind of like, ironically, he's shocked. And he says, he makes a connection and says, well, you were, you were the one. You were the one that I solicited. And now these are my child. These are my children because she gave birth to twins. It's an interesting story. And the way that it ends in this chapter, it says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on the wrist and said, this one came out first. So that's one of the twins. But when he drew back in his when he drew back his hand, this is during labor. There's like twins are wiggling around. One sticks out his hand, but they're like wrestling. Okay. When he drew his hand back out, his brother came out and she said, 
So this is how you have broken out, and his name was Perez. The second one was named Perez, which in Hebrew means to break out. Perez just broke out, and his name was Perez. Now, if we go back to the genealogy, I know this is a long-winded story, but I think it's important because when we go back to the genealogy of Jesus, in the line of Jesus, was in that line a man named Judah was a woman named Tamar was a man named Perez which continued the family line if it were not for Tamar the family line would have stopped at Judah instead it continued with Perez and so on in other words if it were not for Tamar there would have been no line into Jesus. Tamar saves the family line. Tamar is the hero of the story. And guess what? Judah's life through Tamar, through Tamar saying, you know what, I'm not going to call you out, but I'm going to say, hey, this was you. Tamar saves the family tree Tamar bears the children that will ultimately bear the child, the child, the child, and ultimately lead to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. And this fact changed Judah's life. Now remember this story with Joseph. Don't forget Joseph. It's all interconnected. Judah was the one that said, let's sell our brother Joseph into slavery and make some money. There was this cycle of greed through Ur. There was a cycle of exploitation and selfishness through Onan. And then here's, here's Judah who solicits a prostitute who's all sorts of broken and this whole family tree is all messed up. And it's through this family tree that we bear Jesus, the Savior, our Messiah. And later in chapter 39, when we go back to the story of Joseph, Judah is the one with a changed heart that says, you know what, I repent of what I did. Judah is the one that says, let's save our brother. I'll sacrifice my own life. Here's Judah, at one point wanted to to kill and then to sell off his brother after the interaction with Tamar, after Tamar showing him grace and mercy, after Tamar showing him the light, he goes on to the next chapter saying, you know what, I've become a changed man, I have a change of heart, take my life instead, do not kill my brother. Judah's life changed. And, she, and Judah says about Tamar, she is more righteous than I. Judah found transformation and healing and wholeness through the messiness of his family, of his own messiness, of his own mistakes, of his own sins. He has a gut check. He has a reality check. Well, wait a minute. Maybe my sons aren't all that perfect. Maybe it's them. Maybe it's me. It's not Tamar. And when we go back to the story of Joseph, again, Judah repents. Judah reconciles with his brother who he earlier sold off into slavery. He offers his own life. And the story of Judah and Tamar teaches us this. The line towards transformation and wholeness is is often crooked. It's never a straight line. 
Judah and his family were all kinds of messed up. And maybe many of us, we can relate to a really broken family tree. And yet healing was brought in the most surprising way. A Canaanite woman, two times widowed, who didn't bear any children, who had to disguise herself as a temple prostitute. This is the person, the woman, who saves the family line and brings about Advent, brings about Jesus. It's because of Tamar. It's it's not because of Judah and his family line. It's despite Judah and his family line. And Judah understands that. The road to healing for many of us as we bring in our brokenness, our unworthiness, our pain and our hurt. Yes, it may come from our family. That came from their family. That came from, it doesn't matter. Many of us, we bring our own shame and guilt and mistakes. And we want to go straight to healing and to be transformed and to wholeness because that is the dichotomy that the culture, that our society teaches us. That either you're good or you're bad. You're healthy or you're unhealthy. And we want to just jump to the good, the beautiful, the the healed, the reconciled. But that's not the way God works. God works through mystery. God works through time. God works through surprises. There may be people in your life that you don't understand, maybe the very people that brings about your own reconciliation, your own healing. Just like Joseph, just like Tamar, there was patience, there was trust. May this Advent season be all about trust. We don't know how things will unfold. We don't know how our wholeness will be reconciled. We don't know how we will be transformed or healed. Maybe we're just harboring bitterness and anger. Maybe there's people that we just cannot forgive. Maybe there's a group of people that we hate or we discriminate against. Maybe it's ourselves. Maybe we just can't stand ourselves because of the past that we have. Maybe we define our entirety of who we are based on the sum of our mistakes. And if that's you, I promise you that when we trust in Jesus, You can be restored. You can experience the fullness of forgiveness. You can experience the fullness of God's transformation, which leads us into joy, into peace, into comfort, into a renewed mind and heart. And it comes in really strange ways as we've seen through the story of Jesus' genealogy, through the person of Tamar and Judah. You no matter who you are, are being invited into the family of God. Jesus is for you. Jesus was born for you. Jesus died for you. And Jesus resurrected for you. Advent is a season of waiting. But as we wait, may we trust that we are so loved despite the mistakes that we've made, despite the way we may feel of ourselves, regardless of what you bring to the table, you are invited into the family of God. And believe me, and and dare I say this, the family of God was also broken. It had its own issues. Jesus' family line had a lot of baggage and a lot of hurts, and a lot of betrayal, 
and a lot of pain. And yet it was through that messiness that the Savior was born. May we trust in God's character, even without knowing the entire plan, that even in our messiness, Jesus can meet us exactly where we're at, not only ourselves, but our entire family. And maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're a new parent. Maybe you want to be a parent. Or maybe you don't. It doesn't matter. But maybe it's with you that the cycle of sin, of brokenness, it stops. Like Judah, you have a change of heart. You have a transformation. You seek repentance and you receive the healing. And as I invite the worship team back up, may we enter into a time of reflection. Are there words that you describe yourself with? And maybe it's words like shame or guilt or mistake or unworthiness or unlovable, whatever it is. May we just surrender that and just know that God is for you just like God has been for the messiness of his own family. God wants to bring about this Advent forgiveness and healing and ultimately joy and wholeness in your life. May we receive that without barrier. May we see the story of Tamar and her faithfulness, her relentless faithfulness that brought about our Messiah, Jesus. May we look to her as an example of faithfulness, of grit. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you love us no matter what. No matter what. So God, help us to love ourselves the way you love us. Help us to love others the way you love them. And may this Advent, may we await with trust, knowing that whatever we're experiencing, no matter what we're going through, that we will receive your presence, your healing, your wholeness, your transformation, your joy, and your peace. May this Advent be all about that. We thank you for the miracle and the work that you'll do in our hearts. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.